0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
3: Julian Emmanuel, Chief Equity and Quantitative Strategist over at Evercore. Julian, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Good morning. Always oh, great to be here. Let's talk about that pullback in this equity market. Is it time to buy? It is.
4: So, you hit on two very important themes just now. The first, the concept of a bit of tension, okay? The wall of worry that was almost non-existent in July as AI was leading us to the new world, and then suddenly started getting rebuilt at the top, is now fully rebuilt. And how do we know that? Because basically, if you look at the market yesterday, there was a very, very noticeable change when the UAW came out and lowered the, their offer, making the bid offer spread 21 to 30 as opposed to that original 40. And that's when bond yields turned lower and that's when stocks turned higher. And we think there's a lot more to go of that type of action in the fourth So, this quarter. equity call you're making is essentially a bond market call, correct? how can it be otherwise when you look at the action in the last year and a half? The two are positively correlated. It's a
2: new world. I, I want to talk, and I'm, I'm fired up this morning because i got Great and Worthy's running around the world spouting economics, and it just drives me absolutely nuts. Let's get back to common sense. You work for the most famous market economist in the world. Edward S. Hyman invented the game. I want to get from Ed Hyman to Julian Emanuel. What is that linkage across the... Hyman predicted disinflation.
4: So Ed's call again disinflation It has been very consistent. And what's interesting about the current environment is it's very rare that you see oil prices ratcheting higher the way they have, whereas copper prices have been going lower. That tells you that what's going on is more geopolitical than an entrenched inflation psychology. That's going to continue to unwind, right. likely a slowdown. But the commonality here is when you look long term, the reason the market is likely on better footing in the fourth quarter is because earnings are going to continue to grow next year.
2: Tell me about the character of nominal GDP, the animal spirit. Hyman, he's looking at freight cars. He's looking at pickup trucks. He knows what Taylor Swift's going to drink at the football game <laughs> this weekend. Ed's omniscient, okay? Take his research and bring it over to nominal GDP and to the top-line revenue growth that generates that earnings enthusiasm.
4: Well, the first thing you got to say is it's interesting because now there's a reason to watch the Jets game uh, live for maybe the first time in years because Taylor (laughs) Swift may or may not be there. Look, the the fact is, is that, again, part of why this environment has been so difficult is because the economy is so incredibly diverse. And actually, when you look at, at Ed and Oscar's surveys, what we've seen was the trucking survey telling us that we should have been in a recession for the last nine months. But because the manufacturing side is so much smaller than the services side and the airline survey has been on fire literally for years, we all know how difficult going through airports are and we all know how much uh, air air prices have gone up, is that the economy, again, this diversity is likely going to get us through so that even if we get a downturn, it's mild.
5: I never took you for a Swifty. I just am throwing that out there. It wasn't really on my radar. <laughs> what are you buying then? Because if there is this bifurcation in the markets between different industries that are going through recessions at different times, what's gonna lead the drive back to forty-four, fifty 50 by year end?
4: So we think you need to be really thematic and really focused here. The energy story has, is absolutely going to continue to play out. Again, this is geopolitics more than anything, but geopolitics is going to keep uh, the oil price elevated, we think, certainly until next November. Uh, so, it, it again, the only sector that basically is pricing in a recession. Uh, Healthcare, which is actually immune to geopolitics and interest rate gyrations, very good secular story. And what we like, again, uh, the generative AI, it's not just the arms merchants, you know, the the stocks that we thought that, that armed the Internet in the 90s. It's not just those, but it's the companies that have been front foot forward in terms of implementing generative AI. And we're going to be paying very close attention to earnings conference calls in the month of October to see who's doing what and to see what kind of ideas they have in terms of implementation. Those stocks will outperform long term.
5: Right now, as you take a look at the idea of more volatility heading into a really potentially fraught election cycle, how much does that actually make you favor bonds? Because typically you have to adjust for a higher risk premium in the more volatile instruments. Are bonds less volatile than stocks in this kind of environment? Well,
4: they certainly haven't been uh, for most of the last year and a half. Uh, But again, uh, look, we know the Fed is likely about to pause. Maybe there's one more hike left and that QT will continue to run in the background. So we don't really have to worry about what the messaging is there. But it, it, it comes back to this whole idea that when you look at the energy complex, it is sort of off by itself. And so
3: therefore, the case for bonds becomes a little bit more interesting to us. The two of the most powerful quotes in the past week came out of Bank of America, the CEO, the CFO. Needs to be talked about way more. Brian Moynihan, we won't have a recession. The CFO, it's difficult to see a recession when the consumer is spending 4% more year over year. Can you identify any evidence? of a slowdown that's going to lead to a recession anytime soon? Well, it, you actually did
4: see the consumption number ease a, a little bit yesterday. Um, and, but frankly, when when we look at, again, uh, the weekly jobless claims number is is the thing that we're focused on, and it is very strong. But, uh, but here's the thing. <clears throat> we know there are some of these things building in the background that have traditionally, 70 years, been pretty good indicators of recession. LEIs, Loan officers' survey, the yield curve, etc. It doesn't mean that the recession is eliminated. In our view, this is a case of the economic cycle because right. of all the money we threw out being elongated.
2: The value-to-growth ratio is a record, low, essentially a record low. Value has never underperformed growth like it has recently. Do you just stay with growth, or do you buy the value trap?
4: No, I, I think you have to again be very, very targeted. Because if you think about it... Well,
2: targeted what? Free ca- help me out here. Free cash flow? Well, it, it,
4: it's a different story. Right now, there's a valuation edge in areas like energy, which are throwing off ridiculous amounts. I mean insane amounts of free cash flow. uh, And and healthcare, which, you know, despite regulation, continues to be a one-way ticket uh, because of the demographic tailwinds. Uh, And and again, anything that is associated with generative AI is likely to be a company that's also throwing
3: off good free cash flow. Are you going to the Jets game this weekend? No, my Minnesota Vikings okay. have made a misery of professional Have football we confirmed this. whether Taylor Swift is attending set game,
2: TK? I clocked a Scarlet Foo last night. Celebrity so <laughs> okay. okay. loads to What's the like? surveillance. <laughs> and, and Foo was working the phones all day with Taylor's <laughs> people.
0: Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. By providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
2: They have led the way to this higher rate regime that we are living. Veronica Clark with Andrew Hollenhorst leads from Citigroup. What are you writing this weekend, Veronica? Cut to the chase. We need a surveillance out front look. What are you gonna publish for Monday?
6: Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of data. Of course, this week we had GDP revisions yesterday, all the the spending and inflation data today. Um, overall, it doesn't really change the the picture that much. I mean, growth seems pretty resilient. Yeah, we've had some slowing in inflation, but we did get revisions higher. We're coming from a, a higher rate. Um, there's really not that much to change a, a pretty solid growth backdrop, inflation that's still high. You know, really not much to change the message from the Fed, which we heard last Wednesday is higher for longer. And so, I think that's that's the outlook.
5: Veronica, when you take a look at credit card spending, a number of people are saying, anecdotally, you are seeing a significant uh, decrease in activity, that people are being uh, a little bit more frugal and uh, a little bit more discretionary with their income. How much do you reject that in your thesis that you're seeing almost a reacceleration in certain areas that could fuel inflation?
6: Yeah, we've absolutely seen that in, in goods spending. You know, a lot of the story of the last couple of years has been, you know, people were shifting spending away from goods and back towards services, you know, as things were reopening. But the last couple of months, you know, we've absolutely seen retail sales spending, you know, that's on, on goods tick up. We've seen strong, durable goods orders. Um, so it's not, you know, entirely that that people are shifting their, you know, slowing spending. It's maybe that things are shifting relative to the patterns of the last year. You know, growth is not just supported by services consumption anymore. It's really, you know, much more broad than that. You know, it's good spending, it's investment and and those types of components.
5: So if you take a step back, uh, you listen to all these people saying that consumers are slowing, but not that much, and that you are seeing the economy slow, but not that much, and you're going to get this disinflation that's going to lead to a perfect soft landing. What's your main pushback about why inflation is going to remain sticky and why this is going to become a persistent problem that the Fed's going to have to address more aggressively?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really does come down to, you know, when we're we're doing inflation forecasts, we're looking at, the different components and the drivers of it, you know, and a lot of different, you know, components, like what I mentioned in, in goods, you know, those you know, prices are kind of ticking up again, you know, we've, that's been a lot of the disinflation of the last year, you know, from supply chains correcting and commodity prices falling. Well, those stories have kind of reached an end and commodity prices are rising again. And, you know, if we look at the the current disinflation, you know, what we expect to see in the next couple months, a lot of that will come from components like shelter inflation. And that's just reflecting that, you know, home prices fell into. 2022, rents have slowed but the last four months of home price data you know we've seen those prices rising again uh, so there's a lot of reasons to believe that you know if we're not slowing enough if we're not you know in a you know scenario that looks like a recession well then you just get some inflation coming right back and you're just stably at something like three to four percent
5: when you talk about market action and at what point the fed is actually transmitting their policy through the long end of the yield curve Veronica, how much has the yield uh, move higher that we've seen to the highest levels going back to 2007 created a greater pressure that could actually knock inflation down more uh, versus actually being sustainable and something that we see over a longer period of time?
6: Yeah, I mean, the, the moves, of course, and longer end yields that we've had in the last couple of weeks are tightening financial conditions. You know, that will help slow things down. You know, we do still have a recession in our in our base case for next year, you know, because of this you know, tightening of financial conditions. And yeah, the, the transmission of, of higher rates really didn't you know flow through with the normal you know, four to six quarter lag that we were expecting. And maybe that's because you know you know corporations have turned out their debts. You know, people are just not you know as sensitive to high rates. Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't be as as those kinds of you know factors fade. Um, so I think you can still expect some some slowing at some point from from higher rates. Um, But the Fed's own forecast, you know, kind of incorporated that higher for longer narrative, but you really didn't see it in their growth forecast. You know, the the Fed is still very much on this, you know, ideal soft landing kind of path.
2: (laughs) To be clear, Veronica, which measurement of disinflation do you and Andrew use? Are you wedded like I am to three-month annualized because it was beaten into me as a young uh, child? Or do you use another measurement here of the gradient of disinflation?
6: Yeah, I think something like a three-month, three-month annualized is a good way to look at the current trend. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of focus the last year or so on on the core non-shelter services. You know, those are the, you know, services like recreation or transportation, you know, that are, are tied really to tight labor markets and strong wage growth. So, we, we look at all of those measures. Um, but in the end, you know the, you know, the most important measure is the one that the Fed will be targeting, and that's, you know, total PCE inflation. And, of course, they'll look at core inflation um, and all of those components do matter, you know, the the path for goods prices or or shelter, it all does matter. It all is measuring, you know, what people are spending.
2: Uh, Veronica, thank you so much. Veronica Clark with Citigroup. (laughs) Joining us now to save the show, Alan Ruskin, Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Deutsche Bank. And we're thrilled he could join us this morning because he has an incredible note out on American exceptionalism. Alan, I just love what you say about the good and the bad of where we are. Within this market turmoil, there's that whole feeling on a Friday, wait, we're American, we'll persevere, we'll get through this. Describe how America's different given the bond instability we see.
7: Tom, look, I think uh, there's plenty of good. Uh, a lot of it relates to longer term growth factors. Uh, the US is very competitive in a, an array of different uh, industries, new and old. Uh, the geopolitics I think is uh, very helpful as well uh, in the defense industry, uh, in semiconductors is uh, just uh, you know, two industries. But uh, on the negative side and perhaps not focused on all that much until very recently has been what's been going on the public sector deficit and uh, a cyclically adjusted general government deficit of uh, minus six percent or minus seven percent as far as the eye can see uh, would not be seen as uh, sustainable for any country other than perhaps the United States.
2: With the Putin invasion. David Fulkerts-Landau is out front on this. Now, we had in America what Olivier Blanchard calls the Biden stimulus, a series of stimuli. And, folks, we know we got to the last one and away we went. We don't have that crutch anymore, Alan Ruskin. How are we going to get the fiscal support that your colleague David Fulkerts-Landau talks about? Well,
7: hopefully we won't need the fiscal support to the extent that uh, what you're seeing on the public sector side does have a mirror image uh, on the private sector side. So the deficit on the public sector side is offset to a large extent by the surplus on the private sector side. And, and that's why the current account, which usually is the sort of thing that's flashing red, particularly for, you know, for foreign exchange guys, that has not been flashing red at this point in time. To me, the problem that you're seeing right now is more about the financing of the public sector deficit uh, and you're seeing that you know sort of disconcerted um, um, movement in the bond market I think is reflective of that the fact that the Fed's doing QT the fact that China and Japan are not necessarily buying all the onus and burden is falling on the household sector, which normally, you know, directly only holds about 10% of outstanding treasuries. That is a unique set of circumstance. And I think it's draining liquidity from the banking sector as the household sector shifts from deposits into treasuries and it's exacerbating the banking sector problem.
3: Alan, I wanted to bring up something Steve Major mentioned over HSBC that I think contributes to this conversation. Alan, he made the point that what's important here is not just the deficit, it's the deficit at a time where we have an expansion and not a contraction in the US economy. How vital is that point, Alan?
7: Yeah, and I think that's exactly why we sort of cyclically adjust these things. So we kind of like, you know, you know, you might have somewhat better public sector data right now, but when you cyclically adjust it, you know, allow for you know measures like output gaps, etc., uh, you get a better sense of the trend. And the trend is very poor, really. I think that's, you know, that's that's the key point. I, I, you know, I think most estimates suggest the general government deficit of six to seven percent, but those numbers that I just mentioned are, are, are reasonable.
5: Is there any chance, Alan, that then you could see some sort of weakening cycle in the dollar following the incredible strength that we've seen over the past few months simply because the backdrop is deteriorating and some data is coming out better than expected from the likes of Europe and even China on the peripheries?
2: Yeah, I think
7: you know what you're seeing on this side, at least from the financing side, is initially whilst bond yields are backing up, it's actually you know quite positive for the dollar. It can be very positive for the dollar versus EM and commodity currencies. I think uh, you know when you get too much of a good sort of good thing, uh, at least in foreign exchange terms, and you know bond yields back up more than the Fed would want you could get into a situation where the Fed's essentially lost control of the back end of the curve uh, and the economy is slowing, and then they have to cut rates much more aggressively at the front end. And when you reach any of that sort of point uh, where uh, the yield curve is starting to steepen sharply, uh, you know, and it's the front end that's leading the steepening, that would be a major dollar negative. I think that's a story that could be around for the second half of 2024. It's not a story for the end of
5: 2023. Alan, just to sort of build on that, Are you saying that right now it seems like the Fed is losing control over the long end of the yield curve, that what we're seeing seems a little unmoored and uh, not good for the Fed officials that are watching it?
7: Not yet, I would say. And, and you're seeing this in terms of Fed officials not really talking about excessive financial conditions tightening. I think at this point in time, they recognize that, that perhaps there wasn't sufficient tightening uh, from financial conditions, uh, led not least by a very well-behaved bond market. But I think we're seeing the beginnings of an unraveling. And we watch we have to watch this very, very closely because the financing element is truly in a unique phase in terms of this dependence on the household sector.
3: And I really wanted a word on the BOJ and what's happened in the JGB market, the BOJ stepping in, do you get the impression that the Japanese authorities are more concerned about the bond market move than maybe they are the foreign exchange move?
7: I think they're sort of straddling a, a fine line here. I don't think they want uh, you know, dollar-yen uh, much above uh, 150 or above 150 at all. Um, there's, I don't think it's a firm line in the sand. I think they've used the bond market. They've uh, uh, effectively allowed the JGB heels in the 10-year sector to drift up to protect the 150 level of late. So um, it might look like a contradiction right now in terms of intervening of the bond market, but I think the tendency over time will be for that 10-year yield to drift up. It's just going to have to drift up slowly, I think, in terms of you know, what the BOJ is signaling.
3: Adam, thank you, sir, for the update this morning. And great note on the BOJ yesterday as well. Enjoyed that read. I'm Ruskin at Deutsche Bank.
0: Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
5: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
2: Joining us now, Patrick Anderson of Michigan, founder, chief executive officer, Anderson Economic Group, but far more than that, arguably the greatest student of how Detroit became Detroit, what Detroit is now and maybe the hope and prayer of what Detroit will become. Patrick, thanks so much for joining again. We were talking before the segment here on the chaos of the industry. Like GM can't build a muscle car, so they had to go to Holden of Australia to build the Pontiac G8 because they didn't have the knowledge to do it in Detroit. How chaotic right now are the manufacturing processes of these Auto companies who are being very silent within this strike
8: They were well running right before the strike and in fact you what you saw with Detroit was low inventories as you mentioned They were highly profitable the only chaotic portion was the big investment in EVs where both Ford and General Motors were losing two or three or four billion per year which works out in some cases to $50,000 a copy for an electric vehicle. That was really the only difficulty going on in Detroit before the strike.
2: If they are profitable, why can't they give some of that to their valued labor?
8: They absolutely can. And if you look at at the Anderson Economic Group uh, preview of this, we said that these auto workers like everyone else were suffering from inflation. They didn't create the inflation. You have to expect that they're gonna get wage increases. And in fact, that's what the automakers have offered the sticking point, and I, I wouldn't call it just a sticking point because it's, it's more than a point, is that the UAW demands now are for far more than wage increases. Uh, they include things that represent actually bankruptcy risk for the automakers, such as a return to the notorious jobs bank and having a defined benefit pension, which were two of the things that led to Jim and Chrysler's bankruptcy a decade ago.
5: In the meantime, what is the ripple effect of what we've seen from the strikes? I know you're an organization and you've been doing incredible work trying to quantify it. Where are we?
8: First week cost was $1.6 billion, and those were 1.6 hard numbers lost, most of which was wages, and a fraction of that was the automakers. A lot of it were UAW, and a lot of it were non UAW suppliers. The second week estimate, we're gonna have that on Monday, but I can tell you it's gonna be bigger than 1.6 billion because strikes become more expensive over time, not less expensive. And in particular, what happened in the first week is you can expect some inventory to basically just be soft up. And pretty much everyone in the industry, dealers, suppliers, manufacturers, anticipated some kind of strike uh, for at least one automaker. So they were ready for a few days. Were they ready for two weeks, three weeks? Were they ready for Sean Fein? The answer to that is no, they were not ready for the kind of uh, disciplined, focused strategy that the UAW president has brought forward. That's not to say the demands are reasonable, but clearly the leader of this is not the big three, it's the president of the UAW.
5: They do have inventory uh, still. And so there is a question about whether this will actually lead to higher-priced cars. Do you have a sense of how quickly that inventory is coming down? At what point this does raise costs in the near term on auto purchases?
8: I don't have a question about that anymore. Uh, We pointed out before the strike that the the inventory in the industry was about a quarter this time what it was in 2019. So inventory is much smaller. Uh, and, in fact, what you've got is higher prices already. So, if anything, right. prices have, had moderated a little bit before the, before the strike. And here, the UAW strategy, which is surprising, but, again, Sean Fain and the UAW are really leading, setting the terms of this, include hitting parts uh, facilities and strategically picking assembly plants. So they are starting to affect prices. Right. I think this is something to look for in week, in week three. And one of the things to look is what is going to be announced today. Are we going to stay with the plants that we have, assembly plants? Uh, You mentioned earlier the F-150. Right now, Ford's assembly hasn't been hit very much. We estimate that we lost 25,000 production units in the first 10 days, almost all of which were profitable vehicles that would have been sold. So they've lost a lot of production already and they're gonna lose more.
2: Patrick, we don't have time for a Patrick Anderson 45-minute dissertation on where American auto manufacturing's heading, but in the time we have, we're moving to things that have fewer parts, EV vehicles that are simpler made. On a unit basis, on some form of Anderson productivity basis, does everybody understand there's just gonna be fewer warm bodies making these things?
8: This is a subtext of this particular uh, bargaining session. It's the wild card out there. Uh, it, un, until just recently, it wasn't even mentioned except kind of in hushed tones and in, in the second or third uh, 10 minute session of an investor call. But a big issue in this is, are we gonna continue as taxpayers to subsidize uh, plants that are producing vehicles that require fewer labor hours at wages that are less in plants that are in many cases joint ventures with uh, Chinese companies or South Korean companies or other companies and actually substitute that for profitable vehicles that consumers want. That's something we outlined before the strike is a serious issue. And that is at this point completely unresolved.
3: Have you got an answer to that? What is your base case at the moment, Patrick? If you just had to take a guess, what would it be?
8: I don't know what is going to happen. And the the fact that President Biden came to the assembly line and said, yeah, well, they should get at least a 40 percent increase uh, and then said nothing about whether we were going to continue as taxpayers to subsidize the battery plants and actually pay for the conversion. And that's actually the word that the Department of Energy uses. We pay for conversion of plants that are making vehicles that are now being sold profitably to electric vehicles that are growing, but growing very slowly. There's not a base case out here that works.
3: And being sold to a high end consumer as well, currently, Patrick, does that complicate the effort?
8: Absolutely. I've got a battery electric vehicle out in my garage, uh, but fortunately I have another car I can drive. Uh, And the fact is that that uh, 72%, according to our Anderson economic group assessment of these electric vehicles are luxury cars which is perfectly fine. But uh, when you have government policy and taxpayer money and contracts and internal subsidies and regulations that are pushing for 40 or 50 or 60 percent of the vehicles to be those that are primarily favored by wealthier people in metropolitan areas, we have a serious problem both as an industry and as a society. And that is an unresolved issue for which there is no base case for success.
3: Patrick, it was wonderful to get your insight. Thank you, sir. Patrick Anderson of Anderson Economic Group.
2: Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.